First Samuel chapter 27. <clears throat> You know, as we come to chapter 27 and 28 in 1 Samuel, I'm reminded of the kind of dangerous statement that we make sometimes as people where we'll say things like, just follow your heart, or I know what I ought to do because my heart is telling me. Uh, and sometimes we fail to realize that the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, God declares that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? Uh, and to recognize that there is this capacity in the fallen condition of the human heart, again, the heart, when we refer to it, we're talking about just the, you know, the, the, the seat of uh, the innermost part of our being where everything of our feelings and our thoughts and our desires all originate from, uh, that that can be an incredibly deceitful thing. It, it, the Bible says that it's desperately wicked, but even before it's desperately wicked, that it's deceitful above all things, and our hearts can deceive us. And so we have to recognize that sometimes this idea that we should follow our hearts can really be a very dangerous thing, it can be an unhealthy thing. And, and I think when you look at chapter 27, you see how that can be a mistake that someone who loves the Lord and who is following the Lord, our heart can misguide us. We can make mistakes at times if we listen to our heart rather than maybe listening to the Lord and what he's truly trying to say to our heart in the condition it may be in. And of course, for those who are not in right relationship with the Lord, which chapter 28 represents with Saul, who's rejected God, who's not listening to the voice of the Lord, what tremendous evil we have the capacity to delve into uh, when someone's heart is disconnected altogether from God and they're just being led by the desires and ideas and inclinations of their own self-interest. So again, at this point, as we're following David's life, as we've been talking about, David is in about this roughly about a 10-year period that God allows him to be subjected to of wandering around in the wilderness, this period in between when he's anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel as a young teenage boy, and then this gap of time between the calling of God and the anointing of God where he's told that he will be Israel's next king, the chosen king of Israel, because Saul has been rejected because of his rebellion and disobedience against God. But yet God allows this 10-year process where David is wandering in the wilderness. He's been pushed out of his comfort zone. He's living in caves. He's being pursued by Saul, assassination attempts against his life. He's traveling around now with 600 men plus wives and children, which is a pretty large caravan full of people to be moving around uh, in the wilderness and the deserts of Judah and living in caves and trying to keep everyone safe and alive from Saul's men and his troops pursuing them and this process of about a 10-year experience goes on for David and and no doubt it would be draining it would be very hard and David has no realization at this point that God is using all these things and all these experiences as he does in his life as he does in all of our lives to prepare David he's building into David character 
He's building into David, uh, you know, capacities to be able to decision make and handle things and have a heart that's sensitive to the things of God so that he could ultimately be everything God intends for him to be as he assumes this role that God has around the corner for him. And so God has been preparing him, but yet no doubt we can't diminish the fact that, that I mean, a 10-year process of going through these, that's a long time. That's a long time. I mean, we look at the story of Job in the Bible and we think, oh my goodness, what Job went through. Well, we realize what Job went through, those things Job was subjected to, that all happened in less than a window of about a year. And, and, and that's a long time. A year is a long time to be going through challenges and hardships and difficulties and disappointments and discouragement and, and draining experiences that life can subject us to as God lets us our, at times be shaped and go through the fire and the stormy waters of difficulty to work in our lives and develop and build things within us. David's been at this for about 10 years. At this point, He's about eight and a half years into it. What he does not know, of course, because he can't read the next few chapters like you and I can. He doesn't have that advantage. That he's only about 16 months away from assuming the throne and experiencing all of God's promises and the fulfillment of God's plan for his life and everything God's been investing into him. But at this point, again, he's about... 18 months away, but he's eight and a half years into this difficult thing, doesn't realize what's around the corner. And sadly, we'll see in chapter 27, David kind of falters in his spiritual perseverance and he faints under the pressure. And all the difficulties weighing on him and the responsibilities of his men and the families and everyone he's taken care of. And you have the cumulative effect of all these things. Despite God's prior faithfulness and preservation, David sort of has a lapse in faith here in chapter 27. And I appreciate, as I said before, how honest the Bible is that God does not hide the failures of his servants. He allows us to honestly see that even the greatest of men were just men at best. They had feet of clay. They had moments of weakness, times when they had a lapse in faith and struggled with things. And David seems to get a bit weary and taxed with these pressures and the heavy responsibilities and all the challenging circumstances. And those things kind of, it seems, distort his outlook temporarily. And he starts listening to his own discouragements and disappointments and he starts to let his thoughts and feelings have a little too much sway within and he ultimately submits then to those emotions and those wrong thoughts and the stresses that he's under and due to that he falls into a spirit of despair and despondency and he really kind of, you could say, kind of backslides for about 16 months in his life. Talk about the grace of God again. Right before you get the highest position in Israel and you fulfill the calling of God, you backslide for about 16 months. I mean, that'll keep somebody humble, wouldn't it? You know, he has kind of his worst experience. It kind of bottoms out right before God's absolute. And God still doesn't write him off. God still graciously works with him through the process. So look with me in verse one with that sort of backdrop. Again, we're eight and a half years into this wilderness struggle. And David, look what it says right away. First phrase said in his heart. The idea is from the Hebrew. He said to his heart. The idea is his heart is saying to him discouragement, despair, disappointment. I mean, he just, he's sick and tired of being sick and tired and he's thinking, you know what? I just, I don't even care anymore. I don't even care about the promises of God anymore. I'm just done with it. I put in my time. I can't do this any longer. And like you and I, he's just discouraged and he says, 
in his own heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines. That's the enemy of God's people. And Saul will then despair of me to seek me, not seek me anymore in any part of Israel. And so I shall escape out of his hand. So you can tell at this point, David here is utterly discouraged. I mean, he has just hit the bottom point of feeling despondent and feeling like, you know what? I have been bearing up under this load for eight and a half years ever since the calling of God came upon my life and I've even tried to do what's right. It's just gotten more difficult. It's gotten harder. Every time I try and do the right thing, a lot more wrong things start happening to me. And he's just kind of worn out. He's wearied with the whole experience here. And he kind of gets this point where he just almost sort of throws up his hands and despair. You know, I, I don't even care anymore. I just, I'm not even interested anymore. King Schming, I don't even want to be the king anymore. I just have no interest in it. I don't care if I can just be a pauper in the back seat of, you know, uh, the, the, you know, uh, caravan that followed. That would be good enough for me. And, and all of a sudden he doesn't, he doesn't want to think about God's plans and purposes. I mean, and you can tell that he's completely forgotten what God has done for him, what God has in store for him. He, he says in verse one there that I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Well, well, first of all, listen, that's not possible. He couldn't perish at the hand of Saul because God's called him to be the king of Israel. So Saul can't kill him if God's promise and plan hasn't been fulfilled for his life. What has he done? He's forgotten the promises of God. He's forgotten the calling of God upon his life. And he's come to a place where he's just resolved. It's just not possible. It's just not going to happen. He doesn't want to believe anymore. He's sort of just having a lapse in his faith. He's, he's forgotten God's power and God's preservation. How many times had God preserved David already. Again and again, multiple attempts where Saul tried to pierce him uh, with the spear being thrown at him when he was there ministering to Saul faithfully as his servant. Multiple attempts to you know, kill him throughout the wilderness wanderings. And at every turn, God's been faithful. God's preserved him. God's come through and taken care of him. And now all of a sudden he's just convinced that just it's, it's never going to work. I'm just going to someday perish anyway. So he says, there's nothing better for me. I might as well just quickly get up, escape from this, escape from what I've been doing, trying to do the right thing. He's just he's looking for an escape hatch. And we do that when we get discouraged sometimes. We, we, we just say, I just, that's it. I just want to escape. And whether it's you want to run away from God's call on our life or we want to escape from being faithful to what we know God wants us to do in our family or in our commitments or the things he, he's asked for us to do, or whether, honestly, we're just looking for an escape from just reality, and so we turn to, to wrong and unhealthy coping mechanisms, whether we turn to using some substance or doing something to just kind of escape or ultimately to try and escape by just some tragically even look for escape by just taking their own life. And, and, and here he says, I just want to escape. There's the best thing that I can do is just escape, go down to enemy territory. Saul won't think of me anymore. He'll be content that he's driven me away. And, and then he says, I can escape out of his hand. And again, notice here, no mention of David praying. He's no longer exercising confidence in God or God's word. And you can tell, too, that David's not thinking straight because, notice, he's not taking any consideration in regards to what's best for other people around him. You can tell he's spiraling here. 
He says there, there is nothing better for me. Well, wait a minute, David. Don't you have 600 other men attached to you directly and all of their wives and your wives and children? And, and David is thinking about what is best for me. Listen, when you start thinking about there's nothing better for me than to just do this, even if it's because you're disappointed or just really discouraged or despondent, and even if that's the case, that still doesn't justify us to just begin to think with the pattern of, you know what, this is what's best for me. We're not called to live that way as God's people. Our decisions have a direct impact upon everybody connected to us. And David's wrong thinking here is ultimately going to cause a lot of problems, not only for himself, but for all the people attached to him. We'll see in chapter 30 that a lot of pain and suffering come because of David falling prey here to his own feelings and his own emotions and just giving in to discouragement and beginning to live disobediently. And discouragement does not justify us disobeying God. I understand that. You understand that. We all get discouraged at times. But just because we may be discouraged or kind of just being overwhelmed, it does not justify us beginning to make wrong and selfish decisions. He says, there's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape. I have that word there in verse 1 circled as well. Speedily escape. Again, David's only interested not only in self-preservation, and, and he just wants, notice, he just wants one thing, really. It's just immediate relief. He's not really interested at this point in his thinking regarding what would be the right thing to do. He just wants to know what is the quickest way to just get relief because I'm tired of struggling. And I just don't want to struggle in this anymore. I don't want to have to do this anymore. I don't want to have to keep fighting the good fight and running the race. And just in his own discouragement and his own despair, he's not praying. He's not talking to the Lord. And all he's thinking about is what is the quickest way to speedily just get some form of relief. And listen, whenever the word speedily enters into the vocabulary of God's people, let me say that usually is not the leading of God because God's never in a hurry. That's typically the way of the enemy and the way of our flesh, haste, impulsiveness, reaction rather than response. And whenever we find ourselves feeling like, I got to do this right away, I just have to, I can't. And whenever we find ourselves just kind of speedily, quickly feeling like we have to do something right away, there's no time to think about it, pray about it, sleep on it, process, give our emotions time to kind of maybe just settle down because that's what needs to happen sometimes. And I think sometimes one of the most spiritual things <laughs> that we can do as God's people is just go to bed. There have been a few times where, well, more than I like to admit, where I thought to myself, you know what? I'm just done with this day. I'm just done with this day. And the Bible says that his mercies are new morning by morning and great is his faithfulness. And I just go, Lord, I've, I've used up my ticket book of mercies for this day. And my mind is going to, so the best thing I just, that's it. I'm not deciding anything else. I'm not thinking anything else. I'm not doing anything else. I'm just shutting down and I will pick this back. And, and the wonderful thing is sometimes when we do that, that fresh batch of God's mercy is there and sometimes our emotions and our thoughts and the strong feelings, which are very real, of these kind of things just kind of settle down and we're able maybe with a little better frame of reference to guide our heart rather than to follow our heart. 
And that's a big difference. We don't want to follow our heart. We want to guide our heart, Proverbs says, in the way it should go. So David here, he's done. He's ready to go down to that area. So verse 2 says, So David then, notice, arose, went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Now remember, David's been in Gath before. Gath is the Philistine territory where Goliath is from. Of all places, David would probably not be real welcomed. It's not a good place to go. It would be the enemy territory of the, uh, where he killed and slayed one of their giants. So again, he's saying in verse 1, there's nothing better for me to do than to do this. Look, if you ever find yourself saying, there is nothing better for me to do than to backslide, something's really wrong there. There's nothing, really, David, nothing better you could do than to go hang out in enemy territory to go backwards. Uh, and, and David goes, interesting, back to Gath. This is his second time. Remember earlier on, a few chapters ago, David actually went to Gath back then too. That was when he pretended to be a madman, remember? And he had to let spit run down his face and act like he was a lunatic to where that was the way God saved him and got him out of there. And they said, look, we have enough crazy people in our kingdom. We don't need another one. Get rid of that guy. And that was how David got spared last time. Years ago when he went down to Gath. And now here is David running from where God's called him, going back to enemy territory, settled somewhere outside of God's plan, and he's repeating the same mistakes he did earlier in his life. He's going back to the same things that are outside of God's will once again. So verse 3 says, David then dwelt there with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. So notice in verse 2 and 3 there, the danger of yielding to despondency and discouragement is often, as I said, what do we do? We drag other people along with them, us. Because now David has, has brought everyone else with him in his step of disobedience, in his step away, he has a sphere of influence which is pretty large and now he's drawn everyone else into his wrong decisions and in his step of disobedience. And listen, every one of us, ladies and gentlemen, has a sphere of influence. And when we do these kind of things and make poor choices, it does not just impact us. We draw others into what we do. So now they've all gone down to enemy territory. Verse 4, look what it says. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath Interesting, verse 4, so Saul says, sought him no more. Now, notice, it worked. It actually did work. Because when David went down to Gath, verse 4, the Holy Spirit tells us, Saul said, you know what? Ah, he's far enough away now. And Saul did exactly what David thought, which was that he would seek David no more in any part of Israel. So, in one perspective, you could say what David did work. And you have to wonder if David, like you and I, was thinking, see that? It worked. It worked. I mean, things are much easier now. I, I have a little temporary relief. But let me just say something. When we backslide and make poor choices, sometimes there may be immediate or temporary relief. We may get ourselves out of some stress or situation. And, and it seems like everything is working out. And so it seems like things have got a little more peaceful. But can I tell you something? There is such a thing as a false peace. It's a false peace. And just because something works does not mean that God was the one that brought it to pass. Just because something works out that we do some plan does not mean it was God's plan to do that. Or that the way that we went about doing it was God's way. 
So we need to be very careful. David is outside of the will of God and it worked circumstantially according to his desires and his preferences. So be very, very careful that you don't lie to yourself or further deceive yourself at times by believing, well, I mean, see, it all worked out. I mean, yeah, I'm... I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm in this relationship I shouldn't be, or yeah, I'm doing something outside of the word of God, or, or yeah, I did this, and I know it was, but it, but it worked. I mean, it worked out. Well, that doesn't mean that God wanted it to, and it doesn't mean we should therefore endorse it as if somehow that's an indication that God approves of it, because there are lots of things that work that people do in schemes of men in the flesh that God doesn't approve. And that God doesn't endorse or that God did not want to come to pass in the way that they did. So that's no, in a sense, endorsement. And Saul takes a break now from David. But look how David just goes deeper and deeper into a place where he shouldn't go. Verse 5, David then said to Achish, the king of Gath and Philistia, If now I found favor in your eyes, then let them give me a place in some town or in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant, oh my, now you're the servant? Of the enemy? Your servant? These are the enemies of God. Now, he's submitting himself to the enemy to rule over him. Why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months, or 16 months, as we said. So David here proposes to Achish, hey, listen, I don't, I mean, I'm just, you know, a, a, a humble man. I don't deserve to dwell in the royal city with you as the, the king. Well, could you, why don't you just give me some rural area out in the country where me and my men can settle? I mean, that that's, you know, more than sufficient for us, and we don't deserve to, and he's sort of kind of, you know, trying to wax eloquent here as if somehow he's got this great heart. And so the, the king gives him what he desires again, lets him go out to the area of Ziklag. Now we're going to see that David's got a completely ulterior motive in why he's asking this. He's not asking this in good intention. He's continuing to digress in his condition in his heart and becoming dishonest and more selfish and deceptive. He's not asking with honest intent with Achish. Because what he wants to do is not dwell in the royal city so he can be out in the country so he has the freedom to do what he wants to do with no accountability. So that Achish doesn't know what he's doing. So what he's looking to do is create space because he has an underlying agenda and he wants to live there and pretend that he's doing something that he's not and, and, and not have anyone be aware of his personal affairs. So what David's basically doing, we'll see as the text goes on, is he's really trying to isolate himself. He's trying to isolate himself from accountability. Now listen, please take note. Proverbs 18 tells us this. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. It says he rages against all wise judgment. God's people are never intended to live independently, never intended to live in a way of isolation, separated, disconnected. The Bible tells us that we are the body of Christ. The last time I looked, when bodies are functioning healthily, all the parts are connected to one another. They're interdependent. They're functioning together. If something happens where one part is separated from the body, that's called a accident, a trauma, 
an injury, something bad has happened, dangerous, unhealthy, potentially even life-threatening and deadly. So as God's people, we are not to be disconnected. We're not to live isolated from connection to other people or accountability from other people. And that's what David is doing. And the Bible says directly, when a man isolates himself, and we all know how to do that in different ways, where we begin to detach and pull back and we want a little more space and we kind of cut off people's involvement from our life and our interaction. And the Bible says, whenever someone isolates themselves, that there's two agendas. They're seeking their own desire and it's because they're raging against wise judgment. They're isolating themselves because they have a desire to do what they want to do and they know it's not the right thing to do or they would do it right out in the open and together with everyone else. And they're raging against wise judgment because they want the space in isolation because they know if they didn't have that space in isolation, the people, if they were doing it right in front of them, would be saying, what are you doing? That's foolish. That's wrong. That's sinful. You shouldn't be acting like that or doing that or behaving that way. And so whenever isolation happens, know that it's never a good thing. When we find ourselves isolating, you have to ask yourself, why? Why do you need to isolate? Why do you need space? Why don't you need people to know what you're doing? Why are you beginning to disconnect? And when you see someone else isolating, I tell you this, personally and pastorally, I have never not seen that pattern come to pass where I watch somebody isolate, watch somebody isolate, and then before you know it, you find out the reason they were isolating is good things weren't happening. And so David here, in an unhealthy way, he begins to ask for an area. He's given the area out in the country. And this process is going on in David's life, notice, for 16 months. That's almost a year and a half. And let me just say, time is precious to God. That's sad. He, in essence, wastes 16 months of God's plan and God's purposes. He wastes 16 months of God's time by not staying in step with the Lord and letting his own desires and heart drive him after things that he shouldn't be because of his struggles with his own mind and his inability to overcome that and just follow the will of God. A sad thing. Time always matters to God. And 16 months of David's life were basically wasted in disobedience. Verse 8, And David and his men, this is what they did during that time for 16 months. They went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for those nations were inhabitants of the land of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. So it refers to these in the southern areas there down the southern part of Israel, these Bedouin people who were not God's people. They were not the Jews. David was going out while he was living there for 16 months and raiding these people. And it says, verse 9, whenever David attacked the land, he would leave, notice, neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel. And then he returned and he would come back to Achish, that is to report and to share some of his spoils from when they went out raiding among the people. And Achish would say, oh, well, where have you made a raid today? Where have you been at getting these spoils? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremalites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. But David, notice verse 11, would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. So what David is doing, he's going out, he's attacking 
the enemies of God's people, not Jewish people in the southern area, and he's raiding the lands. He's stealing from them their camels and their property. He's out just attacking different territories. And even worse, look how because David's heart is not in the right condition, look how he cruel he's becoming now. He's literally murdering every man and every woman in every territory where he raids to take spoils for himself to bring back to Achish. And the reason he's putting everyone to death is so that there could be no witnesses to go back to Achish and to tell Achish exactly what David was doing. Because when David, it says, would go back to Achish, Achish said, hey, so where did you make a raid today? And basically David, in essence, was saying in our text here, oh, I, I was killing some Jews down in Judah. I was I was killing these Jews over in the southern and and Achish is thinking wow man, yeah this guy really is I mean he's completely defected from the throne he's killing his own people now he's going to be my servant forever I mean he's completely just turned over to us this guy has really sealed the possibility for him ever returning back to Israel he's never going to be the king of Israel now because he's killing his own people. He's raiding his own people, making himself a stench in their nostrils when the reality was that was a total lie. David wasn't killing Jews. He wasn't robbing Jews. He was giving the impression he was doing that. He was now being dishonest. He's flat out lying to Achish, telling Achish that he's doing something that he's not doing and basically murdering every man, woman, and child in those territories so not one of them could go back and inform Achish to tell him what David was really doing, which was something totally different than he was giving the impression that he was doing. So David now, being dishonest, being cruel, hurting people, destroying lives, I mean, just in a condition completely outside of what God's intention was for him. And verse 11 says, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, even though David was lying to him, saying he made his people in Israel utterly abhor him. Therefore, look what I said, he will be my servant forever. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So now he's going to go against the Israelites and he turns to David thinking he's already been killing Israelites anyway. And he says, hey, we're going to fight the people of Israel. Obviously, you've been killing them anyway. And your people abhor you now. You're going to go out with us. Now David's in a real pickle. Because <laughs> now what's he going to do? He's been lying. He's been playing the cover up. He's been playing dishonest with Achish all this time. So David said to Achish, I've been lying, I confess. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. He perpetuates the same lie. Surely you know what your servant can do. That's all he said. But I wonder if he went home tonight and thought, what in the world am I going to do, God? How did I get myself in this place? What am I doing? I am stuck in the wrong place, doing wrong things in a wrong relationship. What am I doing? And now I got to decide if I want to kill the very people that I'm supposed to be the king over. Because he had digressed so far, he now finds himself in this precarious situation, which unfortunately we have to wait, which not tonight, but we'll see in chapter 29 how God is going to bail him out of that situation graciously despite his disobedience. So Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. He had become so much like the enemy 
that his enemy didn't even feel like David was a threat anymore. He actually says, you're going to be actually one of my chief guys on my security staff. Now, let me just say something. When we get to a place as God's people that we are so much like the enemy, that the enemy doesn't even consider us a threat anymore, that's a real bummer. That's a real bummer. And here, David's enemy doesn't even see him as a threat anymore. He says, in fact, you're, actually, you're going to be one of my chiefs of security, one of my closest bodyguards, because David has backslidden away from God's plan and God's purpose for his life. Now, we leave David there. As I said, chapter 29 will pick back up. And now we get this interesting kind of interruption in chapter 28 that reveals to us this very bizarre experience that happens in Saul's life that ultimately seals his destiny and the fact of how he will die as a result. Verse 3 says, Now Samuel had died and all Israel lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul, says, verse 3, had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So uh, at this point now, it tells us that Samuel has died, a reiteration of what we already know, and the Bible makes us aware, verse 3, that at some point prior to this occasion, Saul, when he was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, had obeyed the word of God and had removed from the land of Israel all the spiritists and all the mediums. Now, mediums and spiritists are basically those who channel the dead through occultic practices. They function in a way to kind of help and assist to channel communication between the present world and the spirits of the dead. That's what a spiritist or a, a medium would do. And God forbids any of that type of evil activity and Oftentimes, it's because it happens to be done by the powers and the assistance of demonic spirits. So God's word commanded very clearly in the law, we saw, that Israel was to avoid those things, that they were even to expel any practices of witchcraft or mediums or occultists or sorcery out of their land. Leviticus 19.31 says this, God says, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Good thing to remember next time somebody thinks it's fun to bring out a Ouija board. Leviticus 20 verse 6 says, And the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. And then Deuteronomy 18 says this, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire or who practices witchcraft, a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations the Lord your God is driving out the people before you. So God's word was very clear. These things were not to exist in the land. They would defile and destroy the spiritual condition of God's people. They would defile and destroy the moral fabric work by having people cross over lines they should not. And so Saul, obeying the word of God at one point, had put out, it says, the spirits and the spiritists and the mediums out of the land. But notice at this point, Saul's not in right relationship with God. And watch what happens. Verse 4, then the Philistines gathered together. They came and encamped at Shunem. Now, in that day, in the ancient culture, if you look at a map around this time, Shunem is right around sort of the central to northern part of Israel. 
not too far from Gilboa, which is right below the Sea of Galilee towards the north. What this is indicating is the Philistines had progressed pretty far in taking territory in the land of Israel. They've occupied quite a bit of ground if they're now in Shunem. And therefore, it says, Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped at Gilboa, again, up near the area of the north, Mount Gilboa. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. So the circumstances Saul's facing are causing great fear to come upon him. He no longer has any courage or confidence like he once did because his courage and confidence was initially in God. But now he's not right with God. And so therefore he finds himself terrified and insecure and vulnerable to fears and to anxiety. And again, these oftentimes are symptomatic things of not being in right relationship with God. His confidence isn't in God because he's not in right relationship with God. So as a result, he's struggling with insecurity and anxieties. And here the Bible says as he sees this threatening army of the Philistines, he's not confident God will give victory. He's afraid and he is trembling greatly. In verse 6, look what he does. It says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. That should be underlined either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So Saul, take notice what's going on here, of what we know of him. Saul doesn't want to obey the Lord. We've seen that. He doesn't want to listen to God. He doesn't want to give obedience to God, but he wants to use God to help him when he's in a crisis. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Don't want to obey God. Don't want to follow God. But when I got a crisis, I want one 800 can you help me, God? This is Saul. So now he's in a crisis. He's terrified. He's selfishly seeking God on his terms, really just as sort of a service that God could provide to help him with his own self-interest. He doesn't want to repent of his sin or submit to God in God's will for his life. He just wants God to help him with his current problem. That's it. He just wants God to give him some guidance and give him relief from the issue and crisis and to fix his dilemma. Saul, it says, inquired of the Lord, but look at verse 6. The Bible says the Lord did not answer him. God was silent. God doesn't speak to Saul. Saul had repeatedly refused to listen to God and he kept disregarding what God had been saying to him and at this point, God simply went silent. God stopped speaking to him. God has spoken to him many times, again, again, again. And every time God sought to speak to Saul, Saul disregarded what God said to him. Saul refused to listen. He didn't obey. He wouldn't do what God was saying to him. So there comes a point now where God deliberately refuses to speak to Saul anymore. And God's silent. God doesn't answer. And let me just say, there is something much harder and more difficult than hearing hard things that God would say to us. And that is when God stops talking to us. That's the hardest thing to endure. When God chooses to no longer speak to us. When God chooses in his sovereignty to be silent because he says, I've spoken to you again and again and again. You show me you don't want to listen. I'm a gentleman. If you don't want to listen, I just, I won't talk to you anymore. I won't say it anymore. 
You won't do what I've already told you. You won't do and follow through with what I've asked. You don't want to listen, so why should I say anything else? And God may choose to go silent. And here, the Lord does not answer Saul. And boy, that is a scary thing. But clearly, that's something that God in his divine prerogative can choose to do. It's a dangerous, scary place to be in our condition when we go to God and God just doesn't even answer. He doesn't speak. And here Saul faces this critical situation and you would think, again, God's heart is, maybe if I go quiet and he realizes something's not right, he'll fall on his face in repentance and humility and broke and say, God, please speak to me. And that he would repent and confess and want to be right before God so that his eyes can be opened and his ears can. And God would have mercifully probably at that point if his heart was right began to speak to him again. He would have reconciled the relationship. But Saul, rather than evaluate what's wrong or repent, it says, then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire for her. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium and endure. So rather than repent, and cry out to God, Saul just resorts to other tactics to get what he's after to fix his problem. He says, well, okay, what, uh, just, is there any mediums left? Did we really put them all out of the land? And lo and behold, his servant, well, there actually is. There's this one woman who's a medium in the area of Endor, which was literally a few miles from where they were there in Gilboa. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men were with him and they came up to the woman by night, and he said to her, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one that I named to you. Now, notice verse 8 Saul disguised himself. Let me just say, whenever you have to disguise yourself, that's a pretty good indication you're doing something wrong. Whenever you have to disguise yourself or hide what you're doing, automatic red blinker light you're doing something not good why do you have to disguise what you're doing he was trying to hide and people not know what he was up to listen if you have to hide what you're doing on your tv or your computer screen something's wrong if you have to hide what you're saying or what you're doing by not sharing or making up stories something's wrong when you're disguising what's really going on in your life, there's a reason for that. We're to walk in the light as God's people. And here, Saul, he's disguising himself because he's going to a medium. He's violating the word of God. He's violating his own prior convictions he once held to. And he goes to this medium and says, conduct a seance for me. Bring up somebody from the dead that I named to you. And the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done. That must have been awkward how he's cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? That could be a death sentence. And verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. I mean, you want to talk about utter hypocrisy there. I swear by the Lord, who I am greatly disobeying right now, violating his word, living in gross moral transgression, but I swear by the Lord that nothing bad will happen to you. I mean, isn't it just tragic to recognize how sin can have such a blinding, hardening effect upon people's heart and mind? I mean, it's sad, scary to think about. 
Paul writing to Timothy said that God speaks of those who need to come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil who've been taken captive by him to do his will. Sin can be so blinding, so deceiving. And the devil can actually take someone like Saul and make them captive to do his will. And and literally, the Bible says people need to come to their senses. Saul is just completely, completely, utterly confused and blinded right now. He's swearing by God as he's disobeying God and God's word, using God's speech still. And the woman said to him, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel, the prophet, for me. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. That is, she was shocked. This this scared her. The implication seems to be here that something was happening that didn't normally happen for this woman. God divinely, I think, intervenes in this situation and causes something very unique and unusual to happen that even this woman who was a medium and a spiritist wasn't used to happening because it literally says she was shocked. She cried out, ah! And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. All of a sudden she perceives what's going on. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is its form or his form? She said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle, the image, the picture, the clothing of a prophet. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, imagine this, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now, let me just say, we look at this scenario here and and, and let me just be the first to say, this is something very unique and unusual that's happening here. I believe God, for his purposes, uses what was intended for evil in occultic practice and by his own divine authority as the God of the spirits of all flesh and all creation and all things, that God just takes control of the situation to give, as we'll see, a final rebuke to Saul for his sin here. So God allows for Samuel to come back from the place of the dead. I believe he comes back from the place Luke chapter 16 refers to of Hades, the place of the dead that existed prior to the time of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where it seems there in the place of the dead, in the heart of the earth, there were these two compartments, one called Abraham's bosom, where the believing righteous were being comforted as they waited for the finished work of Christ to give them access into the eternal realm because we can only come through Jesus Christ. It must be the same for everyone. And they were there waiting, being comforted. And the other side of that place that Jesus tells the story about was the side of torment, where the unbelieving and evil were being kept and will remain, it seems, until the time of the great white throne judgment. Now, it seems that Samuel, by God's permission, is allowed to be brought back from this place of the dead And we may say, well, wait a minute. I mean, how does all that work? Listen, this is an unusual thing. I would say this. Remember in the time of Jesus, that Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration allowed for Moses and Elijah to be there with him during his transfiguration. Is this the norm? Of course not. It's great. It's the exception. It's something that God allowed to take place for his divine purposes. So Samuel, though, nonetheless, he's been enjoying paradise. He says, hey, What'd you disturb me for? You never wanted to listen to me before. What'd you bring me back from paradise for? 
I mean, I imagine that's all of us would feel if somebody called us back from being in the, the glory and the comfort of the eternal dimension that we were in. And Saul answered and said, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me. That's never good. And he does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And Samuel said to him, Why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So notice, I believe this is indeed Samuel because he just prophetically reiterates the same truthful declarations to Saul that God had already spoken to Saul before. So I do believe. I don't think this is a hallucination. I don't believe this is a demonic spirit impersonating Samuel, as some would say. I believe God truly, because of the context, the woman is shocked and the truth of what is declared by God is totally accurate. No demon would give truth. And he says, this is exactly what God spoke to you about that I spoke to you about. And then he says to him, verse 19, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Implication in the place of the dead. Tomorrow, the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Again, what's that a reference to? Well, we read earlier, Leviticus 20, verse 6. God said those who seek out mediums would be cut off from the land. God's just holding him to account to the word of God. He's saying, Saul, that is your final violation of the word of God. And now the prophecy of Leviticus 20, verse 6 will take place. You will now die tomorrow. And we'll see in the chapter ahead that that's exactly what happens. He dies in battle. Well, verse 20, immediately Saul falls full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he'd eaten no food all day and night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled by this experience saying, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice and put my life in the hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice and he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate and then they rose and went away that night you know, what a peculiar peculiar section of scripture but again can I come back to what I said at the beginning of this reality of how it is so dangerous to just follow our hearts so dangerous and, and, and listen please as God's people when you know people like Saul who are not in right relationship with God and say, well, listen, I'm just, I'm just I'm, I believe my heart's telling me. I don't care what your heart's telling you. I don't care what your heart's telling you. Here's Saul. I mean, and he's dabbling in things that are of the occult. And I mean, and how far this man had drifted so far, drifted so far 
because of following the own inclinations of his heart. Boy, just an important reminder to us that this is why, again, we need to be responsive to the voice of God. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice, to hearken better than the fat of rams. Listen, God would much rather us just be simple, obedient servants than give him the greatest sacrifices we can think under the sun. When God's speaking to us, it's crucial that we obey him because I don't want God to ever go silent on me. I hope you don't either. Let's stand together.